All right, Phil and I wanted to take a minute and let you know about something cool. Phil, you ready to let the people know about something cool? I am ready. We have something called the Intentional Leadership Retreat. It is in Lake Tahoe, and it is from Tuesday, June 20th through Friday, June 23rd. Tell us what it's about. Well, everyone might not know it's Lake Tahoe, California, but it is. Yes. Yeah, one of the things we, we love to do in Intentional is we feel called to strengthen the local church through helping parents, but also helping pastors. And so if you're a pastor, lead pastor, associate pastor, uh, and you want to come and bring some of your elders or ministry team leaders uh, just for a week of refreshment and encouragement and teaching, we have sessions in the morning, sessions at night, and it's just one of the most beautiful places in all of California that you have the afternoons free to hang out and get some rest, hang out with your team. And uh, so we do this. Uh, this will be our third year. I think we've done it. Third year. To and it. a great announcement is Jerry Sitzer is going to be speaking there this year. You and Diane are going to be there. John Mark Comer, your son, is doing a Q&R. It's going to be a great time. So join us this coming June 20th through the 23rd. The link is in the show notes, or you can always go to intentionalparents.org slash leadership retreat. Welcome to the Intentional Parents Podcast. Intentional exists to help parents in their God-given task to raise passionate Jesus followers. We exist to bring hope, help, and healing to families. Each week, we will talk about anything from parenting, marriage, lifestyle, and what it looks like to follow Jesus in our time. Intentional is made up of Phil and Diane Comer and Brooke and Elizabeth Moser. I am Brooke, and the funny thing is, we are all family. Elizabeth is Phil and Diane's daughter, so we're a family figuring this thing out together. We hope this podcast feels like you're sitting with us in our home talking about how to do this thing called life together. Elizabeth and I are your hosts. Let's get into this week's podcast. All right, today on the show, we have Matthias J. Barker, and I am so Looking forward to this conversation. Matthias is a psychotherapist out of Nashville. You might know him on either TikTok and or Instagram um, and YouTube for that matter. And he is uh, just a really, really interesting, intriguing man who is helping people through the medium of the internet uh, in the arena of therapy and psychotherapy. He has a bunch of different workshops. Check out all of his stuff at MatthiasJBarker.com. We'll put the links in the show notes. But today we, we cover trauma, we cover wounds, we cover triggers, we cover just such an array of stuff. And if I can just encourage you one thing, make sure you listen to the end. And if you're a person that, that says, I only ever get through halfway, listen halfway and then skip to the end because we had just such a lovely last 10 or 15 minutes of this conversation. I really sense the spirit was wanting to speak to some. I know it was uh, blessing me. Also, if you haven't had a chance to just rate and subscribe and leave a comment for the podcast, that helps so much. Would you even take just 15 seconds now and do one of those three things? It really helps us. And as you're interacting with the podcast, would you even tag us on Instagram or any of the other social media platforms that you follow us on? We'd love to tag you and interact with you. So enjoy today's conversation with Matthias J. Parker. Well, welcome back to the Intentional Parents Podcast. Today, a treat a treat, Matthias Barker on the podcast. Welcome, Matthias. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. This is great. I learned a fun piece of information right before we started uh, that that we share an affinity for similar jackets. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm obsessed, obsessed with a Chorco 
coat, a good jacket. It's unhealthy. <laughs> Well, it's funny because I was wearing this jacket and then, and then Matthias just said like, do you, do you, is that this particular type of jacket? I was like, it is. And then I just learned there's three more colors. So I'm going to go figure that yeah, out. Yeah. Well, in a minute. you're wearing, you're, you are wearing my, my favorite jacket. So it's, it's, <laughs> I was telling him I've bought it in three different colors cause I like it so much. And so, yeah, I'd spot Ooh. it anywhere for sure. <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time. I just, you know, I, for those who haven't had a chance to be introduced to you yet, would you just give us a quick snapshot of, of your family, you know, kind of situation, what you do and what your life looks like at this point in time? Yeah. Well, I'm a psychotherapist, uh, based out of Nashville, Tennessee, uh, married to the lovely Paige Barker. We've been married for about 10 years now, which feels wow. weird to say. It's all, then the double digits that feels exciting. Um, mm -hmm. We have two kids. Uh, little Etta is right about to turn two in about like a week and a half. Um, Loretta Jane, I named after her grandma. And then we have Winslow James, um, a new addition, who's about seven months old. So not so new. He's sitting up and I think he'll crawl any day now, which is just... Did you say Winslow? Yeah, Winslow James. That yeah. is an amazing... It's, the name game is so hard. I mean, you know, you know yeah. but it is so hard to get names that are both that feel like, oh, this is for their life. This means something. And then also maybe not like a name that's just a throwaway name. Like it's not so common. You almost feel like our generation especially feels like we need to be really creative with names. Yeah. Um, well, and it was hard. Man. We wanted to pick like family names, but when you start going back and just like, because a lot of my family is just based in the States and, 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 you know, settled and we're farmers. And so, I mean, all of them have like really weird names like Hogue, or like, you know, they're not cool, trendy, neat names. It's just like Clarence, you know? And so we're like digging through the family tree, trying to find something with some vibe, anything. And then we saw that I had this old ancestor that actually settled Jamestown um, back in the original 13 colonies, Edward Winslow. And wow. so there's this whole line that is on my mother's side, actually, my mother's mom, um, that were Winslow's. So how about that? Wow. Like, hey, those are cool That's names. incredible. So I just hope there's no oh. like historical documents that come out that turns out he's like this terrible person. I guess that would be awkward, but <laughs> I didn't do tons of research. I, I like the name. Yeah. Oh, it's a brilliant name. I really like it. Did I just see a cat pop up? Do you have a yeah, cat you just will roaming hear, around your office? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you will hear a cat. Her name is Pepper and she's a nuisance and she will climb on the table, <laughs> stick her butt in my face right in the middle of a podcast and... That's part of my vibe, I guess. I what was so funny is I was looking at you and I just keep seeing this tiny paw. This is literally like a a, a meme, a viral situation, like just little paws popping up. I was like, I think that might be an animal. Yeah. Um, well, man, I appreciate the work that you do for anybody that hasn't experienced your work. I know many people have. I think you're doing such an incredible job. And I told you this offline, but just so appreciate the work that you're doing in our generation and time to help people understand what's going on inside yeah. and putting language to what things they experienced, uh, trauma, different wounds they uh, have a, have occurred over time, and then just the, the very real pain that just comes from being alive as a human. And I think you do a brilliant job of explaining that in a way to which our generation can absorb and understand. I think there's a lot of people that mm. have um, the ability to regurgitate knowledge, and then there's those that can understand knowledge and distill it in a way that's palpable for our time. And I think you're doing a great job at that. So I'm, I'm, we're happy to point anybody to you and to what you're doing, but I just want to say that. And also to kind of give a backstory that came from somewhere, you know, mm -hmm. most people don't 
uh, get to where you're at in the sense of whether it's being a psychotherapist or everyone has a journey is a better way to say yeah. it. And I just wonder if you could take us a little bit, give us the the backstory of, of little Matthias and where this kind of started for you and where this desire, passion, um, and calling emerged. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you. That was so kind, by the way. Thank you so much for saying that. I, I'm trying, I think it's hard to put suffering into words and, and it's not just hard. Well, it's hard for a lot of reasons. I think in a lot of ways, because our brains work really, really hard to make sure that we don't have to relive terrible things that have happened to us over and over again. And we actually were designed with very functional and helpful mechanisms for repressing and pushing some of that and compartmentalizing some of that away so that we can just function in day-to-day life. And and the mm. glorious part about that is that's a great short-term strategy. Like if you're trying to feed your kids and live and work in the world, or you're trying to you know, hunt and gather, like you don't have time to sit around and think through all these complex emotions. But, you know, when we get into a space where we want to start settling down and enjoying time with our kids and enjoying intimacy with our spouse and connecting to beauty and art and God, it's like then some of that stuff that's kind of been tucked away starts to, I don't know, you experience it as kind of a nuisance. I don't really think about it like that, but it, at least initially is experienced that way. That was kind of what it was for me. It was like, I didn't really go to therapy at all before becoming a therapist. I, I I was working at a church. I was a youth <laughs> pastor for a while and really enjoyed yes. that work. I think a lot of the reason I stepped out of the youth pastor gig was I was I was working with a population of kids that were just um I don't know, you call them at risk teens. They were just in a poor neighborhood with a lot of drug traffic and they just had a lot of trauma. So a lot of kids with parents in prison, a lot of kids with parents that were hmm. abusive or that were using and so just a lot of neglect stuff, a lot of physical violence and and to be totally honest with you, I just felt super overwhelmed by it and I didn't know what to do and I wanted to help. And I wanted to create a safe mm. place for these kids, like 30 of them, you know, 30 kids just to experience God. And I wasn't getting paid. I wasn't, I wasn't really on staff. I was just kind of volunteering, you know, for my church and kind of went to a smaller church, you know, with these 30 kids in the neighborhood and I was working at Guitar Center, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and trying to help and <laughs> I felt overwhelmed. I felt like I, a lot you know, a lot of uh, blind spots in my ability to really genuinely help, you know, when it came to mm. the suffering that they were experiencing. And so part of what led me into being a clinician was like, I stepped out of church and there's a long story there. It's probably not worth going all into, but had a moment of deconstruction and not, not feeling too stoked about the church. And, and, uh, mm. I, I remember talking to someone and they're like, well, why don't you just become a therapist? That's kind of like being a pastor, you know, like, you get to do the thing that you like the yeah. most about being a pastor, right? Because I would always say like my favorite part of working in the church was kind of that one-on-one time with people where you get to you know, discipleship. Yes. Like that was, that was the thing. I, I always loved discipleship focused, you know, stuff. And so, um, yeah, it's like, you still do that with people just in a more general way. And okay, <laughs> well, neat, good, fine. And uh, so I, I remember signing up for a social work program originally. Cause I was like, I don't want to just be stuffed away in an office you know, in a super clinical kind of stuffy setting. I didn't feel super neat to me. So I was like, oh, I'll be on the, you know, in the field. I'll be like in the streets with people in their homes, talking to people, be a social worker. I want to, you know, yeah, be in it. And the program didn't like my math credit. Um, I went to a Bible school, my undergrad, (laughs) and I guess Bible math or whatever didn't really transfer over to a master's program. So they were like not happy at all with my transcript and they didn't let me in. But then there's the, they said, well, you know, there's this counseling program that doesn't require the math credit. You could do that. And I was like, fine. 
I'll do a counseling program, whatever. That'll probably allow me to do the social work stuff. And, um, and I ended up really loving it and really did not expect that. I think looking back on it, I can see I had a lot of reservations because counseling seemed like this nebulous space full of people and professors who had like this superpower to read your mind and would ask you all these invasive questions and bring up all this really vulnerable, weird stuff from your past. And I wasn't fully cognizant at that time about all the things that were really affecting me um, from the experiences Mm. that I'd gone through as a kid and Mm. tried to keep that pretty far back in my brain. And honestly, the youth pastor stuff kind of helped because I could just, you know, look at the kids that were suffering and be like, well, the stuff I went through wasn't that bad. You know, I, I didn't have a parent who was a cocaine addict. You know, I didn't have, uh, I wasn't like left on my own for months at a time as a toddler, you know? So I haven't gone through trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) I haven't been through anything that bad. So when you kind of surround yourself with high acuity, maybe the technical term for it, you know, trauma, complex Mm -hmm. trauma, it's easy to kind of just defer your own stuff and really not think of it as that important. And so, um, I went to school and, and really fell in love with counseling, even though I was pretty hesitant about it, realized there's just a lot of stuff in my past that I didn't really know how to put words to and didn't really know how to unpack. And then in the process of learning how to become a clinician, I did my own work in that setting, which was just funny and actually not as you know, uncommon as you'd think. Um, so yeah, my mm. first counseling session was like a year and a half into my program and started doing my own Wow. Doing that. And was that was that challenging to be going to school, understanding all of it, and then almost in one sense having enough awareness, right? You're at least in the pool, right? You're maybe not at the deep end yet, but you're in the pool, you're in the waters yeah. of it. Was it challenging to be honest with yourself or did you find that because you kind of had that backlog of knowledge that it was maybe easier to just jump in and start being honest with yourself about all that was going on in you? Well, you know, it was strange because it was kind of back and forth. It was, it was like, I'd be reading a textbook about people who are depressed and the common thoughts that get them stuck. The common, like, you know, you know, this is like classic CBT type stuff. So like dysfunctional thoughts that are essentially self-reinforcing and keep people stuck in these illogical schemes. I don't know. Long explanation there. Big, big list of, big list of things that are super unhealthy. And I'm like, wait, wait, I believe all those things. <laughs> wait, that's, that, that's, <laughs> that's in my head. That's this. It's like they're reading a script of my internal world. And I was wow. so like almost under, yeah, almost caught off guard by that. I'll be reading these chapters on various mental disorders or, or even just maladaptive coping skills or maladaptive thought patterns. And then I'm like, Oh wait, that's me. Shoot. Um, oh. Well, now what do I do? And then I try to read further in the chapter and see if they have like a solution or something. I'm like, how do you fix that one? <laughs> Cause I think I need, I think I need fixing on that one. And, and uh, it was really like a quest. That was kind of the call to adventure it really is, is kind of how I think about it. It was the, it was kind of the, you know, the fork in the road where I can intellectualize all this and become like really just knowledgeable about it mm. and defer my own stuff and kind of push it away, you know, repress it. Or I can uh, try to honestly let this stuff sink in and have a transforming effect on me. And mm. and then I think that openness to the process, probably in the way that you're describing, allowed me to, you know, move through that more fluidly because I was just like, I'm ready. I'm down. Like, let's go. 
Um, yeah. But yeah. And you were ready for the journey yeah, but almost. I think you, you discover things in different seasons of life in different layers too. So, I mean, it's not, it's not obvious to me that you just go to go to therapy for six months and you're all fixed up. It's like, it's often you go, oh, yeah. you figure out one thing, you feel some relief, you go again a few years later. Um, then something happens in your life, like your dad dies or, you know, your mom's sick or your brother has a big blow up with your mom and dad and, and it brings everything back up and you kind of need to reevaluate it from a different point of view. And, and then I don't know where you go through a change. You have a kid, you, you, you get sick, like you lose your mm. job and it's like all this stuff comes up that's, you know, that you didn't even know was there. And you're like, I thought I went to therapy. I thought I figured all this out, but life kind of unfolds in those layers and gives you opportunities to come into deeper wisdom on those things. You are enjoying content brought to you by Intentional, a crowdfunded nonprofit that desires to help families and marriages all around the world in the area of discipleship and spiritual formation. This offering is completely free thanks to the generosity of our growing community of Legacy Builders. Legacy Builders is a group of people from all around the world that give monthly to fuel this dream that we have in our hearts of seeing discipleship to Jesus in the family become a way of life. A monthly gift of $5, $10, or even $30 can continue to fuel this ministry forward. Our dream is to invite people like you to join and partner with us at a financial level and see this work integrated into families. So as you listen to this podcast, would you prayerfully consider joining us? Would you allow the Spirit to lead you, even if it's just to a few dollars a month? Thank you so much, and may the Spirit of Jesus give you wisdom, clarity, and joy as you pray about joining us. And if you want to join today, go to intentionalparents.org and click on Give. I feel uh, I've been on this journey for about eight or nine years of just like literally weekly therapy and uh, trauma therapy specifically. After this, I have a meeting with yeah. my therapist. I'm I'm amped. Like I get to talk to one therapist, the other. I'm I'm amped about it. Um, and it's that way, you know. You think that you have discovered it, and like, man, you know, awareness is a huge part, right? Awareness of the fact that this is how I operate. It does take a big mental load, but that doesn't mean the thing's over just because you can see it now. Just because I can see that I struggle with anger connected to trauma from my past doesn't mean that. I'm not going to feel that or that's not going to affect my life currently. That is, I have to pause. Your cat is the literally amazingly right in front of the camera. We'll, we'll have to, we'll, we'll grab so a screenshot. That. We'll grab a screenshot of this. Uh, that's, a, she just wants to be right a part of it. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. That's, um, no, I, I relate to you so strongly. I mean, and it's like, and it's both you, because you, I don't know, some people get discouraged by that. I was like, oh, it's just, just, am I always going to just feel depressed and miserable? And then I, you know, I keep moving on in life and I keep feeling so miserable and depressed. And it's like, well, there's, there's layers of insight and then there's releases of wounding. There's, and that, that's the wording I use for it, kind of therapy-ish language, mm. but you do, you release some of that tension, the burden of the things that have happened to you in layers. And so there is this experience of becoming lighter more free, more present, more silent, more playful, you know, more uh, engaged and inquisitive into the dark stuff rather than so burdened and overwhelmed by it. And that is a mm. really meaningful transformation. It's not so much that the suffering goes down. It's, it's the how the suffering has an effect on you. It's the impact. It's the 
the way that those insights and experiences have an effect on your life that starts to shift and change in a really meaningful way and in a way that a lot of us look back on and we're like, oh, that's way better than the pill that I was using just to get the suffering to go away. Because that's easy. That's that's not a complicated thing to do. Like alcohol will make the pain go away, like at least for a couple hours. Like mm. it's a great emotional dowser of pain. But as we all know, like it leaves you yeah. worse than it found you. And so it's it'll yes. be something that slowly drains and takes away everything meaningful in your life if you let it. And that's with any substance, pornography, yeah. whatever. It's like, it'll just take it takes it away. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you, you so brilliantly went here and this is where I wanted to go next. You know, you talked about wounds and suffering. I would love to know from your perspective, because I think we, we say these, there's some words that are really, uh, obviously right now more, uh, they're more popular is a better way to say it. Words like trauma being triggered wounds. These are, these are great words. And I think they, it's really good for us to be aware of them, but could you give me what your definition is? Or if someone comes in and says, Hey, I'm have this situation. How would you define wounds? Sure. I'd love to hear. Yeah. That. That's a great question. Yeah. That'll give a lot of context even for where we go. It's, um, I have a, de- I have a definition of it. It's, it's, you bring up a good point. Everyone kind of uses those words sometimes interchangeably. And then sometimes to mean different things. Like for some people, everything's a trauma, anything that's like, like uncomfortable or bad that happens to your life is traumatic or, or you know, every, everything that just mildly yes. irritates you is triggering. You know, and so they use trigger to mean just upset, I guess. Like, I don't know, or <laughs> agitated, you know? So it's, yeah, there's people that use it really. Yeah. And then there's people that have like a very like hard and fast, almost clinical academic kind of, uh, you know, definition that's strict to the manual, strict to the diagnostic, you know, a, a trigger is a very specific thing that happens with these particular mechanisms in your nervous system. It involves particular regions of the brain that follow with these particular hormones. Like it, it's a very specific thing. And then trauma, um, you know, is reserved for folks who have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And so that would be someone who mm-hmm. is exhibiting ABC symptoms. They've had a certain duration of time, you know, and yada, yada, yada. So my definition for trauma, I think when I really started to reflect on it personally, not just trying to find the right answer that all the textbooks will, you know, pat me on the back and say, you got it, but really maybe a personalized answer to that question is trying to make up for that whole spectrum. Like what's something that holds intact, that there is a threshold um, of PTSD that's relevant, that's helpful while also not invalidating anything beneath like war torture or human trafficking. Like, are we allowed to say this suffering is having an effect on me and it's hard, even if it's not, you know, something of that magnitude. And so my definition sure. for trauma is it's an overwhelming experience that inspires a pattern of engaging with either the environment, the world around you or yourself in a manner that creates these dysfunctional self-reinforcing cycles. Oh, that, I'll say that you, again. yeah. Say it, I was going to say, say that again. That's yeah, very helpful. Trauma, yeah, it's an overwhelm, and that's a key word there. It's an overwhelming experience that um, inspires a manner of engaging with the world around you or with yourself or both that creates dysfunctional, self-reinforcing cycles. I can give you an example. Um, I was going to ask her one, yep. Yeah, so when I was a kid, I I moved to China, um, age nine. Uh, from nine to 11, we lived in China. Uh, dad used wow. to work for AOL back when that was a thing. Remember that? You got me. Um, <laughs> your and, dad uh, did that. That was your dad. Thank you, dad. <laughs> yeah. So 
I don't know. He's working at the call center and he was helping uh, start that up in China. They were doing some joint thing. Um, it didn't last very long, but we were there for two years. And I, I now know how to describe this at the time. I didn't know that I was experiencing a pretty severe amount of culture shock, you know? Mm. So culture shock just by definition is you don't know how to maintain safety for yourself in an environment and you don't know how to predict what's going to happen next, you know? Mm. And so you go and you're in a language that's unfamiliar, you're eating food that's unfamiliar. You're in a city that where people look different than you do and they act differently than you do. And there's different social norms. There's different inside jokes. There's different uh, etiquettes and, and ways of engaging with people. And so every from east to west, man, it's like every little nuance is completely unique. Um, mm. And nine-year-old Matthias found that overwhelming, right? Mm. So there's a pattern of overwhelm. And so how that resulted for me is I was in school and uh, I went to an English speaking school, but it was a lot of kids from just all over the world and a lot of kids locally that were just kind of a bit more wealthy. AOL was was pretty cool. They put us up in this super posh, like Western school. And uh, mm. which was weird because I was homeschooled all the way up oh, to that point. So yes. Um, yeah, we just moved around a lot, you know. And so it was my first time in a, in a school, public school setting, but also wow. in this different country with all these kids from all over. And yeah. I, I just didn't know how to interact, make jokes, you know. They're, they're playing cricket outside. I didn't know what cricket, I, I don't know. Like I just, it was a lot of stuff I didn't understand. <laughs> totally. And yeah. so that inspired a manner of engaging with the world or myself. Right. So my, what that inspired in me was just agitation and nervousness. I mean, obviously like mm. anyone in that circumstance would feel nervous and agitated and a little bit uh, hesitant of how to interact. And that came off awkward, you know, it came off awkward to the kids around them. And, and, and that, uh, that that's normal. And so the kids kind of found that as awkward, but then that awkwardness, when I noticed that rejection or noticed their disengagement with me socially, that, you know, increased the agitation and increased the nervousness. Mm. And so, you know, and then, you know, I kind Indeed. of held on to a dysfunctional belief. It's like, no one likes me, you know, mm. no one likes me. And that's a pretty nine-year-old thing to think that makes sense, you know, like, and yeah. I don't know all that things. And so no one likes me turned into me trying really, really hard to get people to like me, like you, you know, yes. and then the, just the circumstantial awkwardness of me not understanding the social milieu just resulted in them feeling a little bit more, you know, awkward around me. And so this, th there's a self-reinforcing cycle there that you can kind of start to see manifest. It's like awkwardness mm. produces fear, fear, you know, behavior out of a fear spot created awkwardness. And then that awkwardness mm. created social rejection. Social rejection animated my fear. Fear created more awkwardness. So a cycle keeps going and going and going. Now that yes. kind of started to oscillate. And then eventually it wasn't just that I was feeling nervous. I was feeling really overwhelmed and really mm. like frustrated that I couldn't start to, you know, engage socially with other kids. And so then that started to manifest in me as aggression. And so then when mm. kids wouldn't let me play basketball or I get picked last, I get mad. And so there's this mm. one day that I, I took a swing at a kid because I was so just angry and just frustrated that they wouldn't let me play. I don't know what it was. I think soccer or something. And then uh, him and all his buddies ganged up on me as like six on one. And I just got pummeled into the ground. And I mean, oh it makes sense. I, I was overwhelmed by that too. You know, so then I. <laughs> trauma on trauma. Yeah. Well, then I responded with more aggression. And then kids mm. kind of notice that. And it's just kind of a spectacle. You know, you have this agitated, nervous, awkward kid that kind of starts exploding when you poke him. And and the normal response for like a you know, fifth grade kid is kind of poke it and see what happens. And no, oh, that's kind of mildly entertaining. <laughs> and, you know, they don't, they're not really yes. empathizing with why I'm feeling that way. So it turned into kids kind wow. of antagonizing and then me 
responding in anger and then them, you know, increasingly antagonizing me, increasingly responding in anger. So you can see there's a self-reinforcing cycle, a dysfunctional self-reinforcing cycle. My agitation, fear, nervousness, uh, kids don't like me turns into agitation and aggression when I'm provoked, which then actually engages the environment to be more uh, antagonistic and kind of entertained by that, which then, you know, spawns in violence. Like it's this, this cycle of um, increasingly me experiencing violence and projecting violence wow. got to a point where, you know, it's, it, it wasn't that they had antagonized me anymore. They would just kind of leap out and start hitting on me and just kind of waiting around corners and then just pouncing on me and just starting beating me up. Cause I'd scream and I'd cry. And it was just, it was like this kind of spectacle, you know, and oh. that really felt traumatic, you know, and I came back to the States. I don't mean to go on and on and on with the story, but I think it illustrates no, no, a no. story here. It's it's good. Keep going came back to the States and you'd think, okay, blank slate, new kids. Right. But I still held all that fear from the violence. I still held that thought. These kids don't like me. Um, I still held that agitation and that aggression. Now, by this point, I had to redo fifth grade. I failed fifth grade and I just didn't pass any of my tests because I was just so like nervous and, and just, uh, agitated so hypervigilant all the time you know so I, I came back had to redo that I felt humiliated by that um thought I was stupid you know thought it was just because I wasn't smart and so I'm in fifth grade and then you know these new new kids like I was just awkward and nervous and hesitant around them too because I was expecting violence I was expecting hesitation I wasn't aggressive in the same way this time I didn't really have any desire to get into any fights I kept losing so um but I <laughs> I really kind of held on to this belief like i'll do anything for you to like me and wow that turned into this group of kids who noticed you know kind of a kid that was a bit awkward a bit jumpy um kind of easily ruffled up you know that's kind of entertaining let's poke at that and then you know i if i was experienced any humiliation at all i'd just break down crying and run out of the room even if like a teacher even if a teacher was like you know matthias do the problem on the board and i get it wrong i just have this breakdown and it was just, I was at such a high level of tension and stress, you know, that I really didn't know how to hold it together. And so the kids, you know, thought this was entertaining. And one of the games that a group of kids figured out was they would tell me, hey, you know, so-and-so from history class, like this pretty girl, she has a crush on you. You should go. No. You should go. Not ask the girl games. No, no. So I would go. Oh, elated goodness. that, you know, like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like. Devin from history class or like Spanish class. Devin was Spanish class. She has a crush on me. I was like stoked out of my mind. And then I go and I ask her were. to the dance. And, and she's like, what? Like who, who would love you? Gross. No. Oh. And now I'm humiliated and the kids would, would laugh at that. But you know, I didn't really learn my lesson because it's a self-reinforcing cycle. You know, again, it's, so I'll do anything to get you to like me, you know, uh, led into a trap, you know, that, that created a blind spot in me where I really couldn't tell if a kid was trustworthy and leading me into something that was for my benefit or theirs, you know? And so then wow, into this trap, which would produce all this humiliation, which actually then grew my desire to have people like me, which made me even more fervent that I'll do anything to get you to like me. And that, wow. I fell into that thing like six times, like probably like six different girls before I'm like, Okay, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna keep doing that because uh, it was a blind spot. It was like, yeah, you know, it the the humiliation agitated my desire to be liked, 
and it created a dysfunctional mm. self-reinforcing cycle. And I'll, and I'll close this long monologue with just this one thought is like, you know, even in my marriage, you know, especially early on when my wife shuts down in an argument, when, um, because that's maybe her response is that she shuts down. She doesn't get volatile, yell or throw things or anything. She just kind of goes quiet, really silent. Mm. My first thought that typically would come up was, of course, no one loves you. Like, of course, no one oh. like, would love you. And mm. I was also really prepped anytime she would show any anger, I was, I would flinch and expect that she was going to be violent towards me. And not, not that I wow. thought that, that there's a distinction there. It's not like I actually thought she was gonna yeah. it's like my body expected that, that humiliation comes with a dose of violence. And so that's just an mm. example of how trauma can have this self-reinforcing cycle. And so you can only imagine, you know, listening to this, like, what if, what if it was something more than that? You know, what, what about some of the kids that I was talking about in my youth group that had a parent who was a cocaine addict or would leave them for months at a time mm. or, you know, experience physical violence from their dad and beat them, you know, within a few inches of their life. Like what kind of self-reinforcing cycles do you think that produces? What, oh. what kind of uh, yeah. traumatic, you know, oscillating, you know, dysfunctional behavior and engaging with the world or themselves around them, do you think they have to untangle? Like that's, it's profound, you know? So if something as seemingly innocuous as seemingly just normal and common as some bullying, you know, can produce that in me. Um, and I'm not invalidating or downgrading that it, it bullying's, you know, a meaningful thing that, that hurts kids, but I'm just saying you, yes. can, you can start to put together how something like experiencing human trafficking would be gas on that fire in, in really intense ways. And so I think that that definition yes. for trauma keeps intact, you know, a PTSD diagnosis, because you could say that, okay, if trauma is like an emotional wound, if trauma is a wound of emotional overwhelm, then maybe PTSD is like the infection of that wound. And, mm. and you could well, do it's a good visual, right? Yeah. And I'm like, visual. do only infected wounds matter? No, no, because paper cuts suck, man. They are. Well, I mean, not even paper cuts, like being gashed open in a car wreck. Like you can die from yeah. a wound without being infected, you, yep. you know, like, and so, you know, it's, it's mm. something that those small, seemingly small things, if left unattended, can actually then develop mm. into an infection. And I've dealt with plenty of PTSD that started with a constellation of things that seemed fairly innocuous, like seemed fairly neutral. But notice how the trauma from China then actually then compounded in the trauma in the States, like in my story, the bullying from China then actually had a pretty deep effect on how I you know, interacted in fifth grade with those other kids. That, that's the nature of trauma too, is it's a constellation of things that happen that are overwhelming. They build upon each other, they work off each other, they inform one another. And then it's not just you're dealing with one thing. It's like a whole overwhelming like system of, of it. Oh, I, I'm just, as I'm listening to you and as I'm processing um, the wounds, that, that example is really great. And you actually bring, your story brings up something and thank you for going there. Um, your story brings up something that I would, I think two things, one um, for the person that's listening that has experienced has experienced things that are similar to this, right? So they're connecting with you on the level right now of, wow, I, I was that kid or man, I remember experiencing that. And they're hopefully taking some of those 
cues and the, the examples and applying it to their own life right now and saying, oh, maybe this is why I react this way now in my marriage, or this is how I respond to my kids. So, uh, so A, that's, that's just the first thing, observation, and I hope that as you're listening, you're doing that. But then the second thing that kind of comes to my mind, and I know your kids are so young and obviously can experience all sorts of things uh, when they're young, but I would imagine you have a very safe home environment. You're very careful with who's around your kids and, and who influences your kids. Um, and you, it's a very caring and loving environment, but, but maybe for those who have kids that are a little bit further down the road, what would you say to maybe the parents, um, of kids that are being bullied or, and experiencing some of the stuff that you're talking about? What, what are some of the things that you wished your parents would have like either a checked in with you on or, you know, cause obviously it's very easy to, to make it right now. Like it's very linear. It's clear. It's, it's understood well, yeah, at the time. I'm sure it was a mess. Yeah. It's just crystal clear. But has there been anything that you've been like, man, I, if my mom and dad would have maybe just checked or, or maybe the, if they would have kind of had this posture, man, I think it wouldn't have solved the problem per se, but I think it would have helped a lot. Do you have any insight to that? If you're enjoying this content and you want to go deeper, we have an amazing resource that we want to tell you about. It's the intentional film series, Raising Passionate Jesus Followers. Now, this is an incredible tool for you for spiritual formation in the family. And we created this film series to help parents in their God-given task to raise and disciple their own children. Now, our hope is that we're able to help you and give you some of the tools that I know we so desperately need as we're in the process of raising our kids and Phil and Diane have actually raised their kids. This is a nine session film series on the process of what raising a passionate Jesus follower actually looks like. There's some workable solutions in here. There's a bunch of wisdom from the scriptures and there's a bunch of practical help in your journey as you are raising your children. We cover all sorts of things like parental roles, goals versus values. What is discipline versus punishment? How do I create a heart of obedience in my child where they actually want to obey? What is a heart of self-control look like? Or how do I even help my child in the process of character development? We cover that and so many more things. You can use this film series in a variety of ways. You can use it at your home, preferably with your spouse if that's applicable, with a group of friends or in your community, or even through your local church. All you need to do is head over to our website, intentionalparents.org, click on film series, and then follow the prompts. We have a bunch of other resources there that you can check out, but we do pray that this blesses you in your pursuit of raising passionate Jesus followers. Well, here's what I'd say. I have three thoughts that popped in. Um, The first thing I always, when I have a parent ask me that, is have you done your own work on the things that you've been through? And Hmm. that is a necessary, it seems like it's it's adjacent and not necessarily like on, on the nose of the question, but it's paramount because it's, because the wisdom you have in navigating your own trauma is the wisdom you're going to share with them. The insight you gain from dealing with yes. your own stuff is going to be the insight, the, the awareness that you're going to use when you're trying to figure out how to help your kids. It's it's the toolkit. And so if it's like, oh, I want to help my kid, it's like, well, go get your toolkit. And it's like, oh, I don't want to go back there. And here's the two boundaries that people usually run into when I say that. It's just like, well, I don't think the stuff I went through was that really intense. And and, and, you know, like calling it trauma seems dramatic or it seems like I'm whining or asking for some sort of victim card, you know, like, you know, I, I know people who've been through way worse, but notice that everything that I was talking about are fairly common to the human experience, but still had like an actual pragmatic effect on me, you know? And so mm-hmm. one could say, one could say like, oh, it, we only deal with the severe stuff, but 
like you mentioned, like if a paper cut gets infected, that can go septic. Like you can die off mm-hmm. a paper cut that's unattended for sure. I mean, there's a, there's wisdom in attending to things that you even see as small and you might find out they're not as small as you think. They might find out that they actually have ripple mm-hmm. effects that have cascaded into your marriage that have, that have gone into your relationships with your kids, that things that you believe are really small might have a pretty strong, um, pull a magnetic pull on your behavior and your reactions that you're unaware of so may as well like may as well go in and, and do a bit of an inventory and understand if, if it's small i mean no big deal in going in right but then that's this then there's the second obstacle mm. of like well there's a lot of shame in there and then it feels like it's just all my fault and you know even in the bullying mm. story it's like if i was trying to figure out whose fault all that was i would get stuck pretty quick because i could say oh the kids are bullying me because i got aggressive uh, the kids, you know, were making fun of me because I was being awkward. And the whole blame thing really does kind of just, it's its not the most relevant metric to be paying attention to. It's not the most relevant factor to be looking at because it's going to keep you stuck and you're not going to be able to understand the reality of the cycle that you've been stuck in. If you're like, well, it was just my fault, you know, I'm the one who was aggressive. So the bullying was my fault. Well, then what? Like, then you're just going to sit there feeling pathetic mm-hmm. and terrible and like you just deserve everything that's happened to you. Does that have any sort of pragmatic benefit to your kids or your marriage? Like, no. no and I'm not no, saying that's right. even wrong. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying like, oh no, it was those kids. Those kids were menaces. You know, like notice that I don't, I don't particularly care so much if it was the kid's fault or my fault. That's that's really not entirely relevant. And I'm talking about children here. We're that's a totally different paradigm if you have an adult abuser. There, there's certainly fault. Sure. And and uh, blame to be to be given in the world. I'm, I'm talking about my circumstance here. Is you can get caught in circumstances yeah. where like, ah, oh, was my fault. Ah, oh, was my fault. That is a distraction from the process of healing. Because if you if you go down that road, you're going to get stunted and stuck. If you leave that path, um, you know, for a different day, and you go into understanding what was the self reinforcing nature of the belief that I held. The, the thing that was inspired, right? An overwhelming experience that inspires a manner of engaging with the world that produces dysfunctional self-reinforcing cycles. What was the, what was inspired by that traumatic event that inspired me to engage in that way? And then what were the beliefs? What were the understandings I held about the world around me and myself that animated those dysfunctional cycles? And if you don't raise your insight, you don't not just not just come to a clearer wisdom about that, but release the emotional burden that's pent up in there. Then mm-hmm. you're going to stay stuck, and then you're going to be reactive with your kids yeah. and losing your temper and criticizing them. And then you're going to like come out of that, and you feel like a crap parent. You feel terrible. You're like, why did I just scream at that kid? Like, like I love that kid more than anything in the world. Like mm-hmm. they're gonna they're gonna complain to some therapist about me one day, and I was just trying to help. And then you maybe get defensive. It's like I, I don't know, like whatever, whatever. <laughs> Maybe all that was based. <laughs> I think you're pretty spot yeah, on. I yeah, think you're anybody, pretty spot yeah, on. Yeah, it's right like now. lose your temper. Yeah, all of us. Yeah. It's like maybe it's worth investigating if that energy is coming from somewhere other than just your kid. Maybe there's a you hmm. were pushed over into a threat response that was disproportionate. And instead of just, you know, criticizing yourself for being a terrible dad or a terrible mom, you might ask him, what was I responding to? Because maybe the situation was disproportionate. Mm. You know, what I was responding to in the situation was over the top. But maybe emotionally, there's a history, there's a constellation of things there that actually, if I had insight into, it would probably make sense why I responded that intensely. Like, 
maybe that is proportionate mm. to something. And if you knew that, then you would be equipped to understand not just how to navigate your own healing, navigate your own release of those burdens, but then that wisdom is something you could bring into creating a safe and loving relationship with you and your kids and uh, animate the yes. humility that is needed to build trust with them. It would animate the wisdom needed to genuinely guide them without trying to be controlling, without them feeling like you're trying to nitpick and without every suggestion you give in their life coming off like a judgment. Told, oh man, it's so, so I have four kids, yeah. uh, uh, 13 down to five. So a son and three daughters and man, I, I can only say, yeah, I think everybody that's listening, that's a parent probably right now is like, oh, oh you know, it's, it, it's the right kind of hurt, but it's like, oh yeah, there's some conviction in that. And, you know, one thing I know that Elizabeth and I have learned ourselves is that the, one of the best things that you can give your children outside of a good marriage, I think a healthy, st stable, not perfect, but a safe, stable marriage is your work, your, your inner work, your work in this arena. And the reason I say that, the reason we say that is because it isn't until I started the work that I even knew how to address what was going on in me to then understand what was going on in those moments of poor responses or outbursts of anger, or to even articulate that I could, or even have the awareness or humility to say, I'm sorry, that wasn't your fault. That actually more was me. It wasn't actually you. You're just a kid with a lot of energy, <laughs> which is beautiful. And I, and I think that's great. Dad can't handle that because his, his tra the trauma he experienced as a kid keeps him usually at like a six or seven in the arena of stress. And so it only takes very little for me to go from like seven to 10 because I'm still at the space where I'm working through what I experienced. But it, it, I mean, like that, that sounds so nice and tidy, but it's, that is such a messy, ongoing, failing, succeeding, uh, one day I'm like great at it. The next day I'm no good at it. Like I'm great at articulating to, the other night, last night, my son wanted to come in. It was like nine and he was wanting to have this deep talk. And I was like, I knew he wanted to talk. And I was like, bro, I, I love you. I want to connect with you, but I'm honestly not in a space where I can really give much. Like I just, I really can't. And I could see his disappointment and I wanted to just go like, let me pretend I'm not here and then the right thing, you know, then I go through well, like the right thing is to just listen to him and, and just to, to absorb it and put your personal desires aside and listen. And I'm sure it was, I'm sure that actually would have been the better thing. Um, but he was gracious and understands like, that's okay, dad, we can talk tomorrow. And, uh, he's, he's an old soul. He's definitely like, he's very beyond his years in certain ways. And so the next morning I felt like this conviction, like, I feel like I need to just apologize for maybe, for maybe not being as uh, available as I could have been. And so I sit down and I just say, dude, I'm really, I, I do want to connect with you. What you feel matters to me, but I, I'm sorry. I just was not really able to speak. And, and he was, and I was like expecting, you know, this like, well, dad, that's kind of lame that you didn't, you know, that's not his response ever, but I was just expecting this because yeah. this is my, th th that's what I would expect. And, and he's just like really gracious. No, dad, I totally understand. I just want to hang out soon. Let's talk. And and he was like completely gracious. And I share that simple story just to say like, I didn't know that that kind of interaction was even really possible with parent and child. Mm -hmm. I didn't always know that that was like an ecosystem that you could have if you started doing some of that work yourself. 
and inviting the Holy Spirit into that and inviting a group of mentors and people and therapists. Like I didn't realize that you could have these different um, ways of engaging with your kids if you do the work. And I think what I'm hearing you saying is doing the work goes so far beyond, I think, even what we might even be able to understand. It goes so deep when we actually start investing into our own stories. Uh, and, and I've seen it hands down. I still also feel like a failure a lot of the time. <laughs> so um, it, it's amazing how those two things can kind of hold well, hold me, weight. Like I feel like there's progress and failure. Yeah. Well, let me share something because I can even anticipate, you know, someone listening to some of this and just feeling like, like crap because it's, because I would imagine it's like, oh, sure. But I've traumatized my kids. I've let my own spouse oh, yeah. animate a bunch of responses mm. that have, you know, wounded my kids and made them overwhelmed. And I can imagine there's some people just feeling pretty low at this point. And I just want to offer an encouragement. And this is a genuine encouragement. This is, this is real. The trauma isn't mm. isolated to the thing that happened. Um, it's also about if it was repaired. If you mm. repair wounds, then they don't have traumatic effects that spin off into decades and generations. You can. Wow. Oh, that is so hopeful, Matthias. That is so hopeful. Not only personally, but I think even for those listening. Well, it's that is a very and, perfect word. Well, yeah, and even to add a layer to that, it's even in the story you just shared. Like, it's okay to say, "Hey, I'm tired tonight. Let's let's not talk tonight. Let's chat tomorrow." If you do go chat tomorrow, that's fine. Hmm. You know, because then the kid learns. Okay, dad is a mortal creature that <laughs> needs some sleep and has uh, break capacity, <laughs> but I trust that he genuinely wanted to connect with me. And so it's the it's the looping back mm. around. You know, a lot of us, when we feel overwhelmed, we feel just like, oh, we're going to do something wrong. A lot of us shut down. A lot of us just kind of close up because we don't want to say the wrong thing because we don't want to say something that's going to actually hurt our kids. And then we feel really guilty later that we like shut down and abandoned and stormed out of the room or we drove off or we like shut things down. And for the mm. next morning, we feel like a bad parent. It's like, no, that's normal. That's like, that's like the common human experience is we get overwhelmed. The question is, did you go back around mm -hmm. and repair? Cause that's okay. Yeah. The wound doesn't turn into this big traumatic wound that extends into decades and generations if you repair it. And so then my, then my question to follow that is give us a good example then, or, or what your definition would be or how you would define repair. Obviously I can imagine apologizing, but, but I think it's probably more than that. So what would you mean by repair? Sure. Well, a few different elements to to the apology or to the repair, because what you're doing here, you can think about it. You're just restoring trust. That's what a repair is, is you have to restore trust. And that's mm. a negotiation. So it's not about you going mm. through the right steps. It's about you attending to what's going to build back trust for the person that you've you know, offended. Right. That's good. So that's the paradigm. Yeah. And a few things that are helpful in that negotiation is genuinely listening to how it affected them without getting defensive. That's a step most people miss completely. As a lot of people are just like, oh, where do we put the blame? And they're just like, I messed up. I'm sorry. We can move on now, right? We're good, right? Like, I said, I'm sorry. Like, what more do you want from me? You know, and it's like, <laughs> we admit <laughs> guilt and we're fine. Yep. And it doesn't repair. Because what that leaves missing, I don't know, if, you're, if your banker came to you and said, I lost your money. Sorry, my bad. Like I said, sorry, what more do you want from me? Yeah. I acknowledge the problem. Uh, yeah. Dude, like you need to the money. 
acknowledge it. That's a good first step. Thanks. Um, what about the deficit? What about where'd that go? What are you going to do to make up for it? Maybe it could be one you know element, but then what parameters are you putting in place so it doesn't happen again? Hmm. That's what restores trust is like you acknowledge it, you understand it, you understand how it affected me. You're making amends. That's what that is, making up for it. You're making amends to any degree that are necessary, depending on the context. And then you genuinely put in boundaries or put in some sort of structure that can restore confidence. And then over time, they watch you actually attend to that structure. They pay attention to the boundaries you've put up. You're complying with it. Okay, now I trust you again. Oh, so let me give you, let me, let me throw a real life scenario at you. And mm-hmm. I would love, uh, I'm, I would love to hear how you would describe or how you would repair this, right? Like under that definition you just gave, which I think was very helpful, very brilliant. Um, This morning, uh, my kids go to this hybrid school. So two days a week, they're homeschooled, but they go to this, you know, this spot where they can engage with friends. There's like a hundred kids that go to this school. And so two days a week, we have to be out of the house at like 7.40 a.m. So that's four kids, 7.40 a.m. You do the math. It's not, it's not overwhelming, but you got to be on your game. So I knew this was coming. My son hates being late. He His class starts a half hour before his sister. So his sister's being on time or ready is not that big of a deal, but because he they'll always be early, but he is like right in that window of time. So we are getting out of the house. There was a lot going on. There was this big cake building contest. So everyone's like trying to get their cakes in the car in a way that they're not going to break. So it's like, it's both beautiful. And you're like, this is great. This is what childhood is like. Some of the best parts of childhood is so sweet. And then you're also like, oh my gosh, if one drops a cake, we're going to have a nightmare on our hands. You know, it's all these different variables going on through my head. So it took a little bit of extra time. We're about three minutes. We're leaving about three minutes later than we normally would. And all morning I had been cooking up like, I bet you. This morning, we might be a couple minutes late, even if we plan well. And I know, and I was preparing myself. I was like, if we are a couple minutes late, I know my son will tell me and he'll be disappointed and he'll be irritated that we weren't on time. Um, And so I I knew that. This is all like like hindsight's 2020. This is clear now. It wasn't then. And so I'm getting in the car and he knows it's, he knows we're three minutes late. I'm rushing out the door, just trying to get everybody in. And we're getting in the car and he's like, well, I guess we're not going to be on time. And I was like, dude, come on. You know, so I over responded because I was irritated because I, I had already sure. known, like I was just preparing myself. I was just frustrated, you know, and then I'm like, dude, you got to realize there's more people in the world. It's not just, you know, the parental thing. Like there's, I understand yeah. that you want to be on time and I want to honor that. But like, you see how many things I got going on. And so I over responded. I see him start to shut down. And so, and then I'm irritated that he's shutting down. And so I, I just take a couple minutes and I breathe and I'm just like, Hey, listen, I am sorry for over responding. I am frustrated that this happened. And I do want you to be aware that we are trying to always honor this, but it's very hard. Um, and then he's, then he kind of calms and he says, I'm sorry. So that, that was the interaction. So we apologized. We, we kind of, you know, made amends to an extent, but this happens, I mean, this is one example. This happens to people all day long, families all day long. How would you say in that situation, how how would I repair in a more thorough way that would build or rebuild trust in that scenario? Yeah, well, here's the instinct that most of us have when we're criticized just generally, right? Is like, we want to offer people a context for why things didn't go as planned, um, why the response in me happened, 
that defers the blame and gets either off of me onto something else or back onto the other person. Hmm. That's our gut instinct. Mm. Is yes, people depraved and you know beneath the glory of God. <laughs> like that is that oh. is the reality. And uh, and so you have to be aware first of that instinct. You're going to have to pay attention for the first few times you put this into practice, and 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 maybe just to build the expectation. If you're listening to this podcast, you're like, wow, okay, I want to respond differently. I want to repair stuff with my kids. You can expect that that desire, as fervent as it is isn't going to like stop you from being reactive right off the bat. So you're going to notice like, okay, I'm going to make a mistake here and pay attention, do a little yeah. bit of debrief with yourself. Yeah. Did I try to get the blame off of me and then onto something else or onto them? You know, mm. listen, it's not my fault. It's not my fault that I was late. It was the coffee, you know, the, I was trying to get coffee and then I spilled and I had to clean it up because we just got these wood floors and we can't just let the coffee spill on the wood floors and da, 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 like it would stain it. You know, you can get into this big thing <laughs> or whatever, yeah. you know, like, or you can acknowledge, yes. yeah, I, regardless of context, I made a commitment and then the commitment was not fulfilled. Hmm. And so it's like, yeah, that's oh, I guess we're not going to be on time today. Right. I, we should. Yeah. And I understand so I have some, I, an acknowledgement about how that affects him of, and you did that in your, in your repair. It was just like, I know it's really unfortunate, like that. You, you wanted to be on time. You wanted to be prepared. You wanted to get ready for your day. You wanted this and that. And you're not necessarily projecting or speculating. You ask them, right? It's just like, you can ask, like, how did that affect you getting there late? Like, how does that, how does that adjust your day when you're trying to get going, when you're trying to get ready for school all day? And then we're a few minutes late and then you got to be rushing. How does that genuinely affect you? And ask that genuinely, not in like a sarcastic way, because they're going to totally shut down if they catch a hint of sarcasm or like, okay. Yeah, like, you're right. Oh yeah. How did being three minutes late affect you? Like, you know, you gotta genuinely ask. <laughs> it's so tempting. You're right, though, because that is so tempting to be like, because we want to minimize other people's pain, or you know, minimize it to to justify how we feel about it. In many yeah. ways, um, well, it's funny. We were ironically on time still, which is good. 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 Yeah, well, yes. So it was a big win at the end, but like at the same time, there was that tension point, right? <laughs> well, so there's that's the first aspect. So people aren't gonna accept. An apology if they don't feel seen. They're, they're not going to even accept your boundary and wh what you're going to do to change it if they don't feel like you properly understand the situation or how it affected them. Yeah. So that's the first yeah. step is you got to say, hey, I made a commitment and it didn't happen. There's a context around that. Fine. That's that's irrelevant in the trust building process, at, le at least in this circumstance. There's circumstances, yeah. of course, it's a shift. But in this circumstance, what I do first is I name how I anticipate that affected them. And then after that, after I really genuinely feel, and you can feel that just in the energy, like the social, in their facial expressions, in their body language, you'll be able to see, do their shoulders relax? Do their facial expressions relax? Are they still tense? Like you're looking for that, like, yeah, okay, yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. And then, like, I'm really sorry. And then there can be context, but the context isn't getting the blame off you. It's saying, I need the plan. I'm taking responsibility for making sure this happens even if context, 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 context happened. And here's mm. what that could sound like in a few different instances. Hey, like the coffee spilled and I was trying to clean that up. You know, next time, I think we just need to leave like 10 minutes earlier just so like if something happens in the last second that we're still on time for you. And that was my bad. I should have anticipated and been prepared that even if something like that is to happen, I need to, I need to account for that. I need to account that stuff happens. The world doesn't revolve around things perfectly getting on time. That was on me. That was on me to anticipate that. 
And that's where you can share context and they can acknowledge, oh yeah, okay, there's other things going on, but they can still feel like, oh no, dad gets it. Dad gets how important this is to me. Now let's take a more severe situation. For example, let's say that like, um, mm. I don't know, you, you spank your kids and then you, you, you know, cause that's, Hey, those who spare the rod, you know, don't love their kids. Like, so you took that and, and that was super common, at least for, you know, everyone that I know growing up in the nineties, like and even further on is spanking was kind of like the standard thing. And let's say that your kid feels really frustrated by that. And they, they come and it's like, Hey, you were abusive to me. And that certainly is not mm. anything that you experienced. Like you, I wasn't trying to abuse you. Like I, what you're calling me, you think CPS should have come picked you up? Like, what, what do you like? Do you know how hard I worked to give you a loving, incredible home? Do you know how much worse I had it? Like when I grew up, it was a switch off a tree. Mm. When I grew up, I had to break off the stick off the tree. And then they, I had like a bloody, like, you know, you, you can go on whatever. It's like, I had it so much yes. worse. And and you're saying that I'm abusive? Now, mm. notice the defensiveness. Notice I'm trying mm. to get the blame off of me and then back onto them in that circumstances. You're being whiny and you're being fragile and being, you know, you're you're uh, pathologizing something normal to try to play the victim card to feel superior to me, whatever. Mm. Or I'm trying to get it off of me and then off to someone else. Like, listen, that's just how I grew up. That's, that's That was what everyone else was doing. And listen, I grew up with the switch. I was trying to make improvements off of what my dad did and get it off of you onto your dad or your, your upbringing or the culture. Irrelevant. Wow. Irrelevant. Irre- and, and I do this. This is a really helpful thing for me to even hear because this is so quick. Like, it's so it's so hard for me to get to that spot where you're able to not associate that I'm bad, but I made a bad choice. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not bad because I made a bad choice, but I did make a bad choice and I have to own the bad choice. I didn't plan or whatever. Yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off, but oh, yeah. you know, there, you're, there's you're a right. huge it's, part it's of the that most normal, And that's why I say it's the most normal thing in the world. And I'm not shaming anyone for responding this way. It's the most normal thing in the world. Yes. Here's, but watch what happens mm. when we continue through this. If you were to respond, you were abusive. Then you say, how did it affect you when I used the belt? And I gave you spankings when you disobeyed. What was that like to go through that? You're going to watch. And if mm-hmm. you offer that with genuine warmth, you're going to watch as their facial expressions soften, their shoulders you know, move down and become less tense because they're ready for a fight. They're ready for you to say, you know, you're just being a whiny, da, 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 da. That, that's why they haven't brought it up to you thus far because they're worried you're just going to totally reject. They're not bringing it to you to, to slam dunk on you. They're likely terrified to bring that up. Like... And, and the right. resentment and the anger or the sadness is really what that is. All all the stuff underneath all that anger or that superiority, you know, stuff that you're catching in their tone, it's just sadness, you know, so and fear. And so they're they're bolstering their tone to come off condescending because they're terrified. They're trying, they're puffing their chest up, you know. So if you genuinely come to them and say, What did that, what was that like for you? And then they tell you, I felt terrified. I felt like I couldn't tell you anything. I felt like if I made a mistake, you were going to be violent towards me. I know that's hard to take in. Like you couldn't yeah. restrain your defensiveness. I was like, well, I didn't know. I didn't know I had that effect on you. If I could go back, I would change it. If that, no, stop. Like that wasn't my intent at all. Stop. Say, oh, it sounds like, summarize it. It sounds like you were fearful. And when I came towards you with the belt, it really felt overwhelming for you. And then you felt really helpless. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And then they can take that in. Then watch what oh. happens. Is then you say, I really should have known that what I was doing was hurting you. And I should have found ways 
to instill the values that are important to our family, but in a way where you didn't feel helpless, in a way where you didn't feel this, in a way where you didn't feel that, that's on me. I was going off of the best that I had. That's That was what I knew. That was what I saw from mom and dad, but that wasn't enough for you. Regardless of that, you deserved to feel safe in our home and you deserve to feel safe mm. with me. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that. I wish I could do it over again, but the reality is I did it and that damage was done. And I'm really committed mm. to earning back that trust. I'm so sorry. Mm. Yes. You feel that difference? Oh, I, yeah, I'm tearing up with it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering. And, and notice you get, to, you get to explain the context in that. Yeah, you I'm do. not saying you have to, you're not laying down on the coals. You're not, mm. it, you get to explain, but the reality yes. is that if your kids come to you, and felt terrified of you, you know, regardless of the context, regardless if you meant it, it was your job as a parent to intuit that, to understand it and to change course and to make sure that they felt safe. Mm. And that's the, that's the burden of any parent. I'm not saying that at anybody that I hold that same burden. Mm -hmm. And when we make mistakes, keyword, when I'm not saying there's any sort of perfection standard here. I, when I make mistakes, it's my responsibility to come and say the responsibility of parenthood is a heavy one and I fell beneath it and I see that and I'm committed to working within all power that I have to rising to that standard in a better way for you in the future. Yes. And the first step in building back trust is saying, I'm sorry. Yes. Would you say that that, even if it's gone on for years, this last question will wrap up now, but even if that's gone on for years, maybe that was a wound that got infected that became trauma if eventually the kid, the adult child comes and is able to give that to that parent and communicate that to that parent and that parent can then have the response that you just said, do you feel, or at least in your experience, does that at least, it doesn't um, negate that the, this trauma happened, but does it lessen, does it begin to at least have an opportunity to heal in your experience? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If the if the child's open to receive it, because the the other factor here that needs to be named is some children are, we're talking about adult children here. Yeah, like adult children, some aren't going to be receptive and want to build back that trust. They're going to be resentful, and yep. that's their own journey and their own thing that they need to bring before the Lord. Yeah, um, you can't control. You can't make them forgive you. You can't make them want to talk to you and come over. You can't make them give you access to their kids. You can't make them forget the past and move on. None of that is in your control. What is in your control is how defensive you are, mm. what you can take responsibility for, and then um, ultimately your commitment to building back trust. And that's a negotiation. It's not just like you're going to, like, again, fall in the coals, do whatever they say, and you're going to put up with humiliation and then just like railing on you. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about people don't rail against their parents if they feel like they're being heard. Like You're absolutely right. It, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's... There's, there's exceptions here. I, I know I'm not, I'm not trying to make a sweeping statement, but when think about it for yourself for a moment, like if you fin genuinely feel warmth and heard and like you're really being understood and you're not trying to be talked out of how you see the world, you're not trying to, you're not getting a bunch of excuses back. Do you heighten your intensity or do you relax? Mm, relax every time, every time, every time. I, yeah. And I've just, I, and, and I know the extent of this. I worked with I worked for a long time with kids who experienced sexual abuse and even worked in <clears throat> some situations where, you know, parents are out of prison, they're coming back and they're being reintegrated into homes where there's been sexual trauma between parent and child. Mm. 
Oh. And these are the exact same steps we take, even in severe cases like that. Wow. Wow, Matthias, I just want to say thank you. And I know for everybody that can't say thank you, on behalf of everybody listening, thank you uh, for your wisdom, your experience, and helping us see this in a new way. You know, I think a lot of this is so complex, and I think you brilliantly point that out, that this is not um, a straightforward, linear, uh, clear process where we arrive one moment and feel no shame or feel no... uh, you know, responsibility and or pain, like this is a very complex uh, process. Being a human, being a parent, being a spouse, it's all very complex. And I appreciate you um, honoring the complexity of of life. And at the very same time, thank you for depositing just some real honest truth and some perspective that I know will just bear a lot of fruit. So thanks for spending an hour or more of your time with us today and contributing to uh, just even to my life, I'm really excited to process what you've said to even listen back and, and take my own personal notes. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This is a meaningful conversation. I think that, um, this is stuff that's really made a big impact in my life. And, and so these aren't just like concepts and theories that I'm trying to project out into the world to kind of set some impossible standard. This is stuff that, that we aim at Hmm. and that we learn from I'm trying to digest and work into my own family just as much as anybody. Yes. And so, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for everyone who's listening right now for getting this far. This is a, we, we went into the deep end and that was a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> so I, I admire anyone who's continuing to listen. I'm, I'm thankful that would you, I got the chance. Oh, absolutely. Would you mind just even just really, would you mind just closing us in prayer? I feel like this conversation is too rich to not just in one sense seal whatever the activity of the Holy Spirit is that he wants to accomplish through this conversation. So would you mind just closing us out with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Father, I'm so thankful. So thankful that, that you have uh, entrusted us with a wisdom in worlds like psychology or theology in this world of the internet, where we can access all these different resources and points that so thankful that you've uh, allowed us to be in a space where we can be stewards of this knowledge and wisdom. But God, would you through the power of your spirit, integrate it into our bones, into our souls and into our tongues and our reactions, into our neurochemistry. Would you um would you do what only you can do and transform and sanctify our soul into being more like you, into having the calm, patient, present spirit of Jesus, especially in our lives and in our relationships with our kids. God, would you um encourage us if we're feeling shame don't let any sort of shame from the enemy distract from anything that's been shared today god would you just alleviate that and let that mist clear and god would you give us the next step if all this feels really overwhelming and we don't know what to do next would you just clarify something that we can do today a piece of this that we can take away in our own lives that that might to move that might move us in the direction of repair move us in the direction of being more christ-like and more trusting of you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If this podcast has blessed you in any way, here's a few ways that you can partner with us in this ministry. First is to give. Intentional Parents is a nonprofit and we rely on the generous giving of our partners. So please head over to our website, intentionalparents.org slash give if you would like to become one of our partners through giving. Second is to share it. If this has at all been helpful to you, we encourage you to share it with your friends, your family, and those that you know would be blessed by it. Third is to follow us on social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can find us on Instagram at intentional underscore parents. And lastly, if you would head over to iTunes, if you enjoyed today's episode and leave a review on iTunes, this helps us bring more hope, help, and healing for families.